Thank you, Andrew. Probably find it helpful to have your Bibles open as we go through this. So as Andrew said at the start, I've uh, set us a very simple question for this winter's Sunday evening. Who is this Jesus? And if we were to organise an opinion poll among the people of Aldridge, I think there'd be almost as many different answers as there would be people taking part in the poll. Some people might describe him as a great humanitarian, or maybe the highest form of life, or a great teacher, or a prophet, maybe a lunatic, or a myth, or a legend. People with a Christian background might say, he put on humanity so that we can put on divinity, or that he became the son of man so that we can become sons and daughters of God. Now, if we look at the four Gospels, we see that he was born contrary to the laws of nature. He was raised in obscurity. He lived in poverty. And he only once crossed the boundary of the land in which he was born. And he was only a child when he did that. As an infant, he startled the king. As a boy, he puzzled the learned teachers of religion. And as a man, he overcame the forces of nature. He never wrote a book, and yet countless books have been written about him. He never wrote a song, but countless songs have been written about him. He had no formal education, yet millions of people have devoted their lives to the study of his life and teachings. Throughout history, men and women have come and gone, but he lives on. Herod couldn't kill him. Satan couldn't tempt him. Death couldn't destroy him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Now, as Andrew said, we're going to follow a short series of sermons from this letter to the Hebrews. And the letter was written to Jews who had accepted Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. But now some of them were drifting back to Judaism to their old form of religion. And if you'd asked them what the problem was, many would have said that, well, following Jesus was proving too costly. But the writer of this letter saw beyond this to the core of the problem. They were wavering in their faith because they had a very incomplete understanding of Jesus. So that's why the letter begins with a clear and direct explanation of who Jesus is. Now, this is an issue which is as valid today as when the letter was written. We can just as easily have a rather hazy and incomplete view of Jesus. And if so, we may be tempted down the same route as these early Christians. For example, we may have a strong sense of Jesus as our friend, our companion, our guide. 
And he is all those things, but he's so, so much more. Jesus is right at the heart of this letter to the Hebrews. So let's have a look at what these opening verses tell us about him. Who is this Jesus? Verse 2, he's the fulfilment of the message of the Old Testament. We read, in the past, God spoke through the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. If you look at those verses we missed out, verses 5 to 13, they introduce a pattern which we see followed throughout the letter. They quote verses from the Old Testament to illustrate something about Jesus. You see, there's no artificial division between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The old points to the new. The whole Bible, not just the bit at the back, the New Testament, is all about Jesus. And we can't afford to treat the Old Testament lightly. Who is this Jesus? Verse 2, he's the voice of God. In these last days, he, God, has spoken to us by his Son. Now we're told that today we're living through a communications revolution. And because we've got instant access to information from right around the globe, companies spend billions every year bombarding us with advertising in order to part us from our money. Politicians employ teams of highly paid spin doctors to get us to accept their version of events. And people in the public eye engage the services of expensive PR consultants so as to create and polish the image that they want us to have of them. And we're all increasingly prey to fake news. And in this environment, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews makes the astounding claim that in Jesus, God has closed the greatest communications gap of all time. The gap that exists between a holy God and sinful humanity. You know, we can't treat his words like a pick and mix arrangement in a sweet shop, taking what we like and leaving what isn't to our taste. I wonder if sometimes we're a bit like the clergyman that I heard on the radio reject one of Jesus' sayings because, as he said, I can't find a place for it within my worldview. Okay, Jesus, I'll listen to what you have to say so long as it fits in with my own opinions. Who is this Jesus? Well, verse 2, he's God's son. Jesus isn't just a good man. He's not just an engaging teacher or an inspiring leader, although he is all those things. Here is the core of the writer's 
message. Because then, as now, there was much confusion and debate on the issue. Was Jesus a phantom living in a human body? Well, that's what Christian science teaches. Was he the best of men, but not God? That's what Unitarians teach. Did he share our sinful, fallen nature? That's what Seventh-day Adventists teach. Was he the chief of angels created by God? That's what Jehovah's Witnesses teach. Well, no, says our writer. He's God's son. He has the full authority of his father. Who is this Jesus? Verse 2, far from being created, he is the creator. Through him, God made the universe, it says. And the writer is clearly echoing the message with which John begins his gospel. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And because he created the universe, verse 2, he is God's appointed heir of all things. Well, that's very nice, you say. But now consider the implications of that claim. Because Romans chapter 8, verse 17 tells us, we are heirs, heirs of God and heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. Now just think for a moment what these two verses are telling us. It's like we've got a friend who's the son of a multi-billionaire. When his father dies, he will inherit everything. But simply because we are his friend, we'll share fully in his inheritance. And this inheritance is what the first readers of this letter to the Hebrews were in danger of missing out on. Who is this Jesus? Verses 2 and 3. He's the one who shows us what God is like. It tells us he's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And the language that's being used here um, is the language of engraving. Engraving at a time when engraving was the most accurate picture that you could see of someone that you'd never met. If you want to know what God is like, the writer is saying, don't look at a preacher, don't look at a church leader, don't look at a guru, don't even look at an Old Testament prophet. Look at Jesus. Find out about him. Study him. Get to know him. Surrender your life to him. Who is this Jesus. Verse 3, he's in control. He sustains all things. No one would argue that we live in dangerous and uncertain times. 
But the same could be said of every generation in the past 20 centuries since this letter was first written. But in lifting our vision of who Jesus is, the writer is saying that in Jesus, God is in ultimate control. We humans may have the capacity to destroy ourselves with nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons. We may have the capacity to destroy the environment by our mismanagement and our reckless misuse of the Earth's resources. And yes, one day we know that the world as we know it will come to an end. But, says the Bible, it will be in God's time and on God's terms. Who is this Jesus? Verse 3, he's the answer to the problem of human guilt. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. You know, the issue of human guilt is as old as time itself. It's still with us, even though in many ways we're more sophisticated than our ancestors. And even though we try to get round the question of guilt by developing elaborate psychological escape routes to explain our behaviour. Well, you see, it was my childhood that's to blame. It's the deprivation I experienced. It's the bad influence of other people. Well, maybe. But every one of us knows that we're capable of doing things which in our better moments we would despise. We're capable of saying things which we'd hate others to say to us. We're capable of dwelling on thoughts which, if we put them into words in the company of others, would cause us to hang our heads in shame. Back in the Old Testament, the way of dealing with sin and guilt was through an elaborate system of animal sacrifices. These were designed to, to demonstrate repentance. But now, says our writer, it's all been sorted out by Jesus' own willing sacrifice of himself on our behalf. Now, did you notice that odd phrase, he sat down? Why did Jesus sit down? Was it because he was tired? Well, no. Because unlike the temple priests who had to conduct these animal sacrifices again and again and again, Jesus had done the job once and for all. It is finished, he said, from the cross. And that means anyone who comes to him in penitence and puts their trust in him freely receives forgiveness and new life. As Peter puts it in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Who is this Jesus?
Verse 8, he is king. About the son, he, that is God, says, Your throne, O God, will last forever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. So the one who was spat on, beaten, humiliated, tried on trumped-up charges, and unjustly condemned to a brutal death. The one who is only mentioned by many people as a form of swearing. The one who is the butt of comedians' jokes. That one is king. Indeed, the Bible speaks of him more than once, not just as king, but king of kings. We ignore him, we reject him, we mock him at our peril. Who is this Jesus? He's so much more than an inspired man with a unique sense of religious destiny or an outstanding example of selfless service to others, a kind of early Mother Teresa, or someone with a passionate concern for political liberation. The idea which these opening verses of the letter introduce, which are going to be developed in later chapters, is to many people today nothing less than scandalous. Namely, that Jesus is the only way to God. Though other religions may provide valid moral insights, this letter unambiguously develops Jesus' own claim about himself in John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, so what, you say? You've not said anything that I've not heard before, many times, in fact. Well, the so what comes at the very start of chapter 2. We must pay more careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. And then verse 3, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Salvation from what? Some people, even within the church, want a God who accepts everyone on whatever terms, whether or not they acknowledge him or even believe in him. Well, with such a God, you don't need salvation because there's nothing to be saved from. But verse 2 speaks uncomfortably of just punishment for every violation and disobedience of God's message. The salvation which God offers in Jesus is, to quote verse 3, great because the fate from which we're being saved is so awful. Now remember that these words were written to Christians, those who'd heard and accepted Jesus. They're not about rejecting salvation in Jesus, but neglecting it. And we all know what neglect can do. Neglect your garden and the weeds will take over. Neglect your teeth and you'll lose them. Neglect your work 
and you'll miss your performance targets and with them the chance of promotion. Neglect your business and it will fail. Neglect your spouse and they'll look for someone else. Neglect your medicines and your health will fail. Neglect your soul and what hope do you have? So how does such spiritual neglect happen? Well, it can happen when we stop praying and doubt that God is even listening. It can happen when we start to regard the Bible no longer as inspiring, but boring and even worse, distasteful, because it doesn't fit in with the mood of the age. It can happen when we start to go about our daily routines without any thought of God. And it can happen when meeting together for worship and fellowship ceases to be a joy and becomes a chore. Pretty soon, we can find ourselves utterly absorbed with our own selfish interests. That's the how. But why does such spiritual neglect happen? Well, as in many areas of life, it may be because we've lost our sense of curiosity and can't be bothered to learn more of God. It may be because we've grown comfortable and want above all else to keep things just as they are. It may be because our lives are over busy and we feel that something's got to give and that something is God. It may be that we start to conform to the non-Christian attitudes of those around us. Or it may simply be that we willfully choose to do things that we know are wrong. And I wonder how many of us recognise ourselves in one or more of these statements. How indeed shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? A wealthy man and his son loved to buy rare works of art and they put together an enviable collection. Then the son was conscripted and went to war where he was killed in the course of saving another soldier. A few weeks after the funeral, there was a knock on the grieving father's door. And there stood a young man holding a large package. It was the soldier whose life had been saved. He opened the package to reveal a portrait of the man who'd saved his life. Knowing that man's love of art, he'd painted it in his honour, and he now offered it to the grieving father. It's not much, he said. I'm no great artist, but it's the best way I can think to show my profound gratitude. Not surprisingly, the father was deeply moved and he gave this modest painting pride of place in his enormously valuable art collection. And when in due course the father died, that art collection was put up for auction. And wealthy collectors gathered from far and wide. The auctioneer announced 
that the first item for sale was the portrait of the dead man's son. He invited an opening bid, but there was silence. The collectors were all waiting for the great works of art. Does no one want the son? called out the auctioneer in frustration. And then the silence was broken by the dead man's long-serving gardener who offered £50, the limit of what he could afford. The auctioneer invited a higher bid, but the silence continued. So he banged his gavel to indicate that the painting of the sun was sold. And then, to the fury of the wealthy art collectors, he announced, the auction is now complete. And he went on to explain that there was a secret clause in the dead man's will that only the painting of the sun was to be put up for auction. Whoever bought that painting would inherit the whole collection. Whoever took the sun would get everything. Why should we not drift away and ignore such a great salvation? Because you see, whoever takes the sun gets everything. And as I close, I'm going to leave you with a couple of points which challenged me as I was studying these verses. There's the first. In what ways is my understanding limited as to who Jesus is? And then, do I sense within myself any of the symptoms which might cause me to neglect the salvation which is mine in Jesus? Nigel. We're going to come and spend some time reflecting on those questions in just a minute in, our, um, in the quietness as we uh, pray as individuals. But before we do that, um, the band is just going to lead us in a song. Uh, after the song, we'll go straight into a quiet time of personal prayer and personal reflection. And so use these questions to kind of ask ourselves, 